0: Welcome to The Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them.
1: Their argument was, well, if this was so dangerous, why would these guys do it? And my response was, it was so dangerous. And this tells you how clueless and incompetent they
0: were, because they didn't even realize that their lives were in danger. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today?
2: I am good, Steve. I'm, I'm excited for today's episode.
0: This is a really good one. Uh, not only uh, is it just a fascinating case, but we've uh, just got a fantastic guest. Uh, I want to go ahead and introduce him um it's robert mongaluzzi but he goes by bob or as we learned many times goes by mongo so uh (laughs) we're 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 gonna i think we're gonna go with bob and until maybe maybe towards the end we'll see but uh,
2: depending on how we behave maybe we'll be upgraded to mongo status
0: (laughs) right right exactly (laughs) (laughs) well bob how are you doing today
1: I'm having a great day, and I'm really looking forward to this.
0: Yeah, um, well, I hope things are well up in Philadelphia. That's where Bob uh, Bob's law firm is out of. He's a uh, one of the founding partners of Salts, Mangaluzzi, and Bendeski, based out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, and uh, I'm going to go through your your bio here in a second, but uh, it, it is a just a string of first and largest and biggest. Uh, you know, I mean. It, the the career that uh, that Bob has had and is still having is uh, is just uh, uh, it's legendary, so.
1: People, yeah. send me, people send
0: me good cases yeah that's
1: right
0: that's right <laughs> or should I say tragic cases yes, yes yes very tragic cases but um well let me go ahead and tell everybody uh, a little bit about you and I should have also said that uh, you can look up Bob at smbb.com uh that's uh, two Bs uh, as in boy so smbb.com uh and uh, and I'll just say that um while I'm gonna talk uh, you know about some of um uh, Bob's uh successes and, and what he's accomplished in his career um i i think i i learned one thing from reading your opening bob which is you you're some people call you the king of construction accidents but from your opening many of these aren't accidents because an accident is unexpected and unpredictable and too many times as in this case this was both expected and predictable and therefore not an accident
1: uh and you nailed that and and that was one of the ways that i uh, started the opening and uh the tragedy of this case was it wasn't unexpected. Uh, it was something that was predictable and in fact predicted and documented and warned about in emails. And nobody did anything about it. And that's the real tragedy of this case.
0: Yeah. And, and in so many of these cases, I mean, it's just a string of uh, of incompetence and mistakes and and, you know, not just one person. Uh, making a mistake—it's just sort of everybody. Uh, almost, uh, I hate to use the term "keystone cops," but I mean, it's uh, just a—you a, know—a number of people coming up and just not doing what they're supposed to do, and and causing a, a just a terrible tragedy. Yeah. Well. Well, uh, Bob, let me let me go through. So uh, I, I'm just going to read some of the things that uh, that Bob has accomplished. Bob has been part of the largest personal injury verdict affirmed on appeal in Pennsylvania history, the largest individual personal injury settlement in Pennsylvania history, the largest multi-plane of personal injury settlement in Pennsylvania history, the largest workplace injury verdict in Pennsylvania history, the largest verdict in a motor vehicle accident, uh, the largest dram shop verdict. Uh, the largest settlement of a construction case in American history and um, was one of the lead plaintiff attorneys in the largest settlement of a railroad accident case in American history and has the largest verdict for a construction worker in American history and the largest uh, wrongful death settlement in uh, Philadelphia County history. He's handled six cases with verdicts or settlements of more than a hundred million dollars and i I, uh, in addition to the one that we're going to talk about here today, which was $227 million, uh, he was uh, um, lead counsel on on a, a case involving uh, Amtrak, a disaster that happened there that resolved for $265 million, a case against U-Haul that was $160 million, a um, $150 million verdict, $124 million verdict, and a uh, $101 million uh, verdict. And he's had uh, more than 400 verdicts and settlements in excess of a million dollars, has been inducted into the National Trial Lawyers Hall of Fame in 2018, was awarded the Legal Intellige- Intelligencer uh, Lifetime Achievement Award in 2017, and was the Philadelphia Trial, La- Trial Lawyers 2019 Michael A. Masmano Award Honoree. So uh, Bob, uh, just... Thank you so much for coming on the show, and thank you for uh, sharing with our uh, with our audience. And the two hundred sixty five million
1: is two sixty five is the same number of Springsteen concerts I've attended. So.
0: Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> uh, so that's my lucky number. I have not been to a Springsteen concert. It's it, it is one of my bucket list <laughs> items, and uh, and I, I want to go. And my my partner did say uh, uh, my partner did get to go to see uh, Bruce up when he was on Broadway a couple of years ago, and said it was spectacular.
1: Yeah, I saw that five times, but only four on Broadway. I saw the rehearsal. Oh wow. Wow. Yeah. wow. That is awesome.
0: Wow.
2: Well, Bob, such terrific results, but I know it was torture probably sitting there listening to them. And as as <laughs> as you pointed out um earlier, unfortunately, you know, you're involved in these cases with where the scale, like the one we're gonna talk about today, is massive and the, the tragedy is is massive. The loss of life and the injuries are massive. And Steve, it just feels like this really um, tough shift from the most recent episode we recorded. I don't know what order they'll air in, but was a, you know, false imprisonment case where, you know, it sort of felt like vindication. It felt almost like a a happy ending to a story. And, and sadly, in the case we're going to talk about today, you know, it's just, it's, still just such an unbelievable tragedy tragedy and and i'm sure we're going to talk more about it but um for people who don't do construction law and haven't seen a lot of the um you know how the sausage is made it's pretty terrifying it yeah. really
1: is it really is and this happened uh uh four uh five blocks from our office Oh wow, wow. man, yeah. Um, well, it,
0: I, th- I think people must have been shocked to when you're talking about a a, um, a project of this scale. Um, what they were going to do, the, people must have been shocked to learn that the people that they hired to do it basically had zero experience, uh, zero qualification, uh, and just really shouldn't have been out there.
1: Yeah, it was uh, it was the worst incompetence that you could possibly fathom.
0: Well um let, let me go ahead and give the uh give the audience a little background on the case and uh, and Bob if I mess anything up be sure to let me know. Okay. Uh, but this was uh it, so generally I guess it's known as the uh as the Market Street Building Collapse. Uh the name of the case would be uh Harmon et al versus the Salvation Army uh, uh Basciano um uh, STB Investments, and there's a number of other defendants, and we'll talk about that as we as we go. Uh, but essentially, what happened was is that um, uh, this uh, uh, person, Richard Basciano and his company, STB Investments, uh, had a plan to, um, I guess, demolish and renovate a block on Market Street in Philadelphia. And the idea was is that they were going to um, uh, demolish all the buildings there. I think there's Maybe five buildings total that they were going to de- demolish, and then they were going to build a twin tower high wa- high rise residential, um, uh, uh, facility, uh, you know, apartment complex or condo complex. There um, mm-hmm. was the, was the idea, um, and essentially, uh, what happened was is uh, both Mr. Boschiano and his uh, his company and the people who work for him are are mainly based out of New York. So they hired some people to be on the ground in Philadelphia, including an architect uh, by the name of uh, 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 Marincos, Plato.
1: Plato Marinakis.
0: Marinakis. Okay, I see. uh, Plato Marinakis was the um, was the architect who was supposed to be supervising uh, what happened and in the uh, basically a couple of guys who were supposed to uh, demolish it, a person named Griffin Campbell and then saw, uh, Sean uh, Shop—is that ben shop. Okay. Yeah,
1: I just want to say that we've decided to test your pronunciation ability. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I know with Mangaluzzi, Bacchiano, and
0: Paranochis. I know I definitely screwed up a couple of those, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, and, and so, and so there in this, it, next to this project was a, uh, Salvation Army thrift store, uh, basically a one story. I, I think probably everybody's been inside a Salvation Army thrift store at one point in time in their life. And, you know, and what I found really just tragic about this case is not only what happened to everybody, which is terrible, but you, you, you know, that people who are working at a Salvation Army, uh, 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 thrift shop aren't doing it for the money. Um, They're there usually because they either believe in just helping other people and they, and they just want to do the best they can. And then, and then the people that are shopping, there are people who really, uh, you know, either one, just want to support the Salvation Army or two, uh, need to be able to, uh, you know, buy things uh, uh, affordable. So they're um, really need, uh, really need protection. I I would say more than, more than most. Um, But, but, I'll, I'll long story short this they were they were demolishing the building next to uh the thrift store and um basically we're not doing it uh the way they were supposed to at all we're not following any of the osha regulations weren't following the ansi standards uh weren't following philadelphia's own uh regulations and we'll go through this basically had no qualifications the the person that was in charge, the contractor that was in charge of de, of the demolition project had been involved in two row houses uh, where he was like the fourth person. He wasn't even the main person in charge, uh, like, like the fourth person involved helping demolish two row ha- houses. And then all of a sudden he's put in charge of demolishing, uh, you know, five large buildings, including this four story building known as the Hoagie, uh, Hoagie C- City Building. City um that stood right next to it. So they, so he's not qualified. And one of the keys that should have tipped everybody off is that his bid, I think, came in at more than $200,000 less than anybody else's. Uh, and uh, and uh, Mr. Maranakis had, uh, had recommended him, I think maybe had known him from something else. Um, but as, essentially the way they were they were under some time pressures in order to get this uh, demolished sooner rather than later i think they were behind schedule um and the way they were demolishing it was basically taking out the joists and uh taking away the lateral stability of the building so that it was basically uh like as you described bob uh jenga you know like pulling the pieces out of the puzzle getting ready to fall uh and And then I guess to add, and I didn't really, uh, understand exactly why the Salvation Army was so, um, just resistant to cooperating or, or moving, but basically, uh, they, they were not, um, uh, helping or or cooperating uh, with the company in uh, allowing access and in, um, making sure that their store was empty, uh, making sure that they had removed people. And basically they had gotten a number of warnings from uh, uh, basically the aide to Mr. Basciano um, saying that, you know, the the building is becoming more unstable. Uh, you need to, you know, help us. The more, the longer you wait on this, the more dangerous it becomes. And they basically ignored him uh, and thought that he was being a uh, kind of blustering and bullying and didn't want to listen to him. So all of that comes together. So on June 5th uh, of 2013, uh, the store is full. I think there was, uh, was there 19 people in there? uh, uh, some, some working, some shopping and, uh, and they're doing de- demolition on this four story building right next door, uh, to it. And the, uh, the, the worst thing possible happens is that for, uh, the, I think it's the Western wall, uh, basically collapses down on top of the, um, thrift store um and there are a number of people that are trapped um uh, there were uh, seven people total uh, killed and i want to make sure um and Twelve injured, 12 and 12 injured and one of them a woman named miss pleckin uh had the most some of the most horrific injuries i've ever heard of where she basically had the lower half of her body amputated um, but your, your clients were, uh, Juanita Harmon and Brian and Danny Johnson. And then the, um, there was, uh, Rosaline Conte, Borber Davis, Kimberly Finnegan and Mary Simpson were also killed and they were represented by other, uh, law firms, uh, around the Philadelphia area. And then, and, and then just the other, a number of other people that were injured, uh, and, and Bob and his firm led a team of lawyers in this, uh, in this case that, um, uh, I'll just, uh, I'll just lay out quickly was tried over 15 weeks. Uh, so almost four months of trial just on the liability phase. If I read that, right. Um, yeah,
1: it was actually, it was actually longer than that. We started okay. jury selection in mid August and we finished this trial, February 7th. So it spans seven months, although there was a couple of uh, breaks for Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas and the Christmas holidays. Uh, So the scope of this was uh, uh, was pretty amazing. I'm going to talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. And, 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 and I mean, it is because, I mean, it was, it, it was just a, a huge undertaking. Um, and so after you finished the uh, liability phase, they found a, um, um, I wanted to read it off, but they found against, uh, all of the defendants, uh, with regard to the people that weren't employees of the Salvation Army were the customers, they found that the Salvation Army was 75% at fault, STB was 13% at fault, uh, Richard Basciano was 5%, uh, Plato Maranakos was 5%, and then Griffin Campbell and Sean Binshop uh, were 1%. And then with regard to the people who were employed by the Salvation Army, uh, there was no percentage fault against them because I'm assuming they were uh Hard. were barred by workers' comp. Yeah. Uh so STB was 34% responsible, Richard Basciano was 34% uh responsible, Plato Marinakos was uh 30% responsible, and then Griffin Campbell and Sean Binshop were one percent apiece. And so after after that liability finding. Uh, it, it, and it looked like they also made findings that would be, would, uh, justify an award of punitive damages too, if I read that. Correct. Um, so after that finding, then you move into the damages phase and I, I know that you at least put up a, a few witnesses, but then it sounded like the case resolved during the damages phase. Is that right? It did. It
1: resolved for 227 million.
0: Okay. So $227 million, uh, um, uh, for the, the entire case, which is, uh, I mean, just a, a tremendous, uh, uh, jo- you know, job by a by a, um, uh, a great team. And and you know, one thing I, I wanted to know, and I will talk about a little bit here, is that um, the lawyers that were on the other side of the case, uh, Richard Sprague, was a, a noted, famous trial lawyer, um, and had been involved in the investigation of uh, JFK's uh, assassination and of Martin Luther King's assassination. So a very very well known attorney. Um, had been hired by STB investments. But, um, so this is really um, just a, uh, I'll be honest in my mind, you know, because of the, maybe it's because of how many people are injured. I I was surprised that there, were there any parties that settled out before trial or was this just against everybody?
1: Yeah, this went against everybody. And and let me just first mention Dick Sprague, uh, an absolute uh, legend of Pennsylvania. Uh, probably the most well-known and impactful lawyer in in Pennsylvania over the last 50 years. Uh, a friend, uh, Dick died a couple weeks ago at age 95. Uh, mm-hmm. He, at age 91, was in that courtroom every single day for the uh, the days we worked over that seven months, and and I had to deal with him and his presence in closing. And when we get to closing, I want to talk about that.
0: So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online and you can have all the great verdicts in the world but if nobody knows about them then they're not going to come and hire your law firm so you need to find a company like digital law marketing
2: that's right it turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it and Steve we've talked about this but now that I finally know what SEO is which is search engine optimization it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get and something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of.
0: Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into. But it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are, and digital marketing is great at it.
2: Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish.
0: Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done, but they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website and you should go visit them at digital Law marketing.com that's digital law tell them
2: tell them we sent you
0: now I, in fact I, uh, I I thought the way you handled the closing especially with somebody who's obviously uh, very well known and and and, uh, and legend was uh, masterful so I, I definitely want to talk about the uh, the closing okay so um, can I chat a little bit yeah, about it?
2: Yeah, 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 go ahead, go ahead.
1: Okay, so um, first let's start with uh, the problems that we have. So uh, the uh, the building that's being demolished is owned by Richard Basciano and STB. Uh, he has a right-hand man, Tom Simmons, who's his property manager. No experience whatsoever in managing a, a demolition project. They hire as their owner's representative, Plato Marinakis, an architect who's never... Uh, acted as an owner's representative. They select, as you've uh, talked about, Griffin Campbell as the demolition contractor, has a total of eight days of demolition experience, has spent 18 of his last 20 years working in a food truck, um, uh, unlicensed, inexperienced, no knowledge of the standards. Well, and then the building falls on top of the Salvation Army. So the Salvation Army has its employees killed. Uh, their building is demolished. Uh, ben Shop, who's the excavator operator, is high on marijuana at the time. He gets arrested. Griffin Campbell gets arrested. By the time we go to trial, uh Ben Shop has pled guilty to, I don't know, 20 felonies. Uh, Griffin Campbell goes to trial. He gets convicted. Um, and they're going to be on the verdict sheet. Uh, right. And so now uh, Basciano has a million dollars in insurance coverage. Uh, the uh, Griffin Campbell has no insurance. Ben Shop has no insurance. Plato Maranakis had a $2 million wasting policy by the time we were <sighs> finished with trial that was gone. So the only possible ability to collect was against Salvation Army. Now, so what are the problems? Let's first start with, Salvation Army, who is a beloved charity. Uh, Their uh, motto and slogan is doing the most good. They are uh, religion-based. The officers in the organization are all ordained ministers. Uh, We did a focus group beforehand uh, where... um, Hold on, I want to look to make sure this is right. So 63% of the mock jurors had a positive uh, viewpoint uh, opinion of the Salvation Army. 38%, very positive. 63 and 38 is 101, so 101% (laughs) of the people had a positive opinion of the Salvation Army. We were now going to attack them. The uh, licensing and inspection uh, inspector who was out weeks before the accident commits suicide afterwards. we have the elimination of joint and several liability in Pennsylvania preceded this. So the only way we could collect against Salvation Army for the full amount was to get 60 percent on the on the, you know, the beloved charity who had a building fall on top of it. Uh, the case was bifurcated on damages. The defendants had 20 uh, preemptory strikes to our 10 Um uh, and, and ben shops high at the time on marijuana. Yeah. So we had uh, a, a tremendous uh, headwind to overcome. Oh, yeah. There was one thing that we had in our favor, and uh, you, you mentioned it, Steve, early on. There was uh, a squabble between, and I want to give you the backstory. Yeah. Salvation Army <clears throat> building was on the corner. And, and Basciano wanted to enter into a swap of buildings and to give the Salvation Army a building that he owned in Philadelphia, which the Salvation Army didn't do. There was bad blood in the negotiations between the two of them. That corner prevented him from having the entire block and was going to reduce the value uh, of his project. So, so so that's sort of the backstory. Um, there was... Uh, continuing strife between, uh, STB and Bassiano and and the Salvation Army. So, uh, what we did have going for us is, uh, Bassiano's right-hand guy, Tom Simmons, had sent a number of emails to the Salvation Army saying, we need cooperation from you. Uh, our demolition project is, um, Is becoming dangerous because you won't give us access to your roof and cooperate with us. And there could be an uncontrolled collapse. Um, That was good. That was the good uh, part of that. Uh, Simmons uh, came in and said, uh, I was really puffing. There was no danger. I never visited the site, I never saw it. I made it up to pressure them into giving us cooperation. Everybody from the Salvation Army said uh, uh, he was just puffing. None of us believed it. Uh, there was a person from the city uh, who got the email uh, who we thought maybe, hey, this could be really good for us, who never even opened the email. That was like the best person for us was the guy who actually didn't read it. Everybody else said um, that uh, he was puffing. There was no danger. That, that uh, letter uh, an email came in on on May uh, 15th, a construction worker at another project, half a block away had taken a photograph May 15th, which we got. And that showed that in fact, it was dangerous on May 15th, uh, and we had our, uh, construction expert Steve Estrin, who I think is the best in the world, go through that and prepare A really great exhibit that had circled every OSHA violation that was shown, including the two most important. And when you're demolishing a building, there's two things that you want to do. You want to take it from the top down. You don't want to take out any lower members, structural members at the bottom. You want to take it from the top down. You never have more than one story of wall unsupported for the common sense reason that it could fall over and kill people. Right. Um, And so those two key OSHA issues, both of them were present. It was shown in the photograph. So our theory was whether he meant it or he didn't mean it, whether they believed it or they didn't believe it. If you get a warning, then you have to investigate it. And if you had investigated it, you would have found out that, in fact, he was correct and that this building was becoming more and more dangerous day after day after day. Now, one of the the Salvation Army was a retail store. So our theme was they're no different than a shop, right? They're no different Mm -hmm. than a footlocker. They have the same responsibilities. It doesn't matter who owns them. And uh, in cross-examining their expert, I thought, let's, and by the way, both our expert and their expert, when you think of what people have the most Lawsuits and retail stores, it's supermarkets. And so our right. expert came yeah. up at a supermarket, their expert grew up in the supermarket industry. And what's the number one hazard associated with supermarkets?
0: Slip and falls.
1: Bingo, slip and falls. So when I was cross-examining their their expert, I said, you know, you've been in supermarkets, what's the number one hazard? He said slip and falls. And so I put my hands sort of over it. And I said, and you know, we've all been in the supermarket where you hear uh, Vinny spill in aisle five, Vinny spill in aisle five. And jurors laughed like you did, but they got it because it was part of their common experience. And so my question was, if someone said there's a spill in aisle five, don't you send someone to aisle (laughs) five?
0: That's a great point. to, To
1: clean it up. And so that simple theory um, was something that I knew the jurors would be able to understand because every single one of us have experienced that. And we began couching to, so why wouldn't they go to aisle five? Was right. The supermarket manager is supposed to say, oh, well, you know, the person who reported the spill in aisle five, maybe they're making it up or maybe they're just puffing. No, you send someone to aisle five and they, with a mop. And if it's, Needs to be clean it up, clean it up. And so yeah. that was crystallizing. A uh, We took, uh, I think, 70 people were deposed. Uh, we, we deposed, and some of them for multiple days. I think we did 140 days of depositions. There were scores of experts. There were 19 plaintiffs. There were 100 motions in Lemonade. Um, there were thousands of trial objections, but we crystallized it down to we thought what well, was a very understandable logical way to go
0: yeah no i i i, I love that uh analogy you make with uh the slip and falls at uh, at the grocery stores because that really does sort of bring it home when I was first reading this case uh, you know I, I was thinking about you know if you hadn't had those emails then Uh, You probably would be looking at Salvation Army as a victim in this case.
1: I think that that's probably true. Uh, The other thing we had going for us is, remember, uh, Salvation Army was a corporation, and corporations uh, should be treated just like regular people. You shouldn't hold it against them. But the, the one thing about a corporation is the knowledge of any employee is the knowledge of the corporation. So there was a sharp division. Uh, And I think we're going to get to this later on between upper management, which was 300 miles away uh, Mm -hmm. and the store employees uh, who are the ones exposed to the danger. And one of the things that happened is that the upper management, uh, uh, the colonels and the majors uh, never told the employees at the site that they've been getting this, these emails warning of the danger. Um, So, um, and the jury did not take kindly to that, as you might imagine. Right, right. Yeah,
2: Yeah. I mean, the emails, when you read them are, you know, I think a lot of times we have cases where um, the emails still end up sort of being important, but they're kind of, um, you know, they're sort of written with the tone that somebody might be looking at them someday or, you know... Whatever. They're kind of they're a little bland. These emails are pretty crazy just in terms of, you know, I, I get that he said he was puffing, but I mean, he literally says an about to collapse building. I mean, yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, yeah. let's go over it. May 10th. Every minute that passes increases the liability exposure for all parties. May 15th. The longer the building remains undemolished, the greater risk to the public of an uncontrolled collapse. The very exact thing that occurred was predicted three weeks beforehand. Uh, May 29th, there's increased risk and danger. May 31st, we need access to your roof to minimize risk, danger, and expense. So these were not just, you know, Soft warnings. These were right. strident, uh, right to the point warnings about exactly what occurred.
0: Well, and, and it looks like I know you. You said that Mr. Simmons uh, said that he was just puffing, but they also uh, had some of these from a, a lawyer, right? That's correct. So
1: STB's lawyer wrote the: uh, uh, the longer it remains undemolished, the greater the risk to the public of an uncontrolled collapse. And he sent that to the Salvation Army. And as we know, uh, the attorneys are the agents uh, of those companies. And so they were bound with that knowledge. Um, And, um, but, you know, they had the defense that nobody believed it. It was puffing. Uh, While this was a case about the Salvation Army, it very much became a construction case. Uh, because the key issue, at least as I, in my view, and there was debate about this amongst the plaintiff attorneys, and uh, I think uh, the viewpoint that we adopted was the right one, which was the single most important thing was proving that on the days that they sent these emails, the danger was actually real. It didn't really matter whether the person who sent it was puffing or not puffing. It doesn't matter. They say there's a hazard. You got to Take a look at it and figure it out. I mean, if you're having a party in your backyard and your neighbor says, hey, my tree is leaning over your backyard, it's rotted and it's going to fall where you're having your kid's birthday party with 30 kids there, you need to go check that out. Whether they're just, you know, because they're being annoying neighbors and they just don't want kids in the backyard and they're making it up you still got to make sure that your property is safe.
2: So Bob, did you get a sense? I'm sorry, Steve, but, um, did you get a, I know you mentioned there was bad blood, but I think you read these emails and you're like, you're still sort of like, why didn't Salvation Army, why didn't they do anything or why didn't they take it more seriously? Do you think it was just, they thought that, that, you know, this construction was just a pain in the ass Were they just so far away, they didn't care.
1: I think a lot of it was there was bad blood between them. They weren't going to cooperate at all. They thought he was puffing, and they they just didn't care about it. Um, If they had actually spoken to their own employees, their employees came in and testified. And listen, some of them were plaintiffs in these cases. Right. And they were represented by plaintiff attorneys. Uh, But they came in and said, I could hear it. I could see it and I could feel it. And that was something that we, in direct examination, did you hear it? Yes, would you hear? Uh, and then they tell us, did you see it? Yes, what did you see? Did you feel it? You feel the vibrations? Yes, what did I say? So this whole hearing it, seeing it, feeling it, um, number one, capturing three of the senses that we have as humans. As people react a little bit differently. The rule of three, That if you repeat something three times, it becomes uh, something that the jury understand. I don't want to say understand; I would say remembers better. So, so that was an important issue in the case.
0: So I'm wondering. You know, I I, I get that. You know, before this happens, that the the uh, Salvation Army could sit there and say, "Well, this guy's puffing. He's trying to bully us. We don't believe him." But but if I'm looking at this as a trial lawyer getting ready to try this case. I'm I'm gonna have a hard time with that argument in front of a jury based on the fact that everybody knows that this thing fell and killed a bunch of people. So I'm wondering how did did they handle it that same way at trial, or did they try to change that up a little bit?
1: No, they they came in by the way, and I forgot the one email on uh, May 16th. Your delays in responding pose a threat to life, and lives were lost, limbs, limb, and. Mariah Mariah Pleckin lost both of her legs uh, and public safety. So uh, but they still came in and said, by the way, they never used if you ask them a question about collapse, none of the Salvation Army witnesses would use that word, nor would their experts. They said the building were was pushed over by the excavator operator. And and that was obviously something where. Uh, in my view, they were coached not to ever concede mm-hmm. oh, yeah. collapse because collapse was in the email, and that's something I brought up during closing. So, you know, our our counter to this whole puffing defense was uh, was the danger real? And we brought in experts, and we had OSHA uh, to to back us up. Um, you mentioned Jenga. I had to cross examine. Uh, literally one of the leading structural engineers in the world, uh, testified for the defense. He was the engineer who the United States government uh, retained to reconstruct the World Trade Center collapse, uh, and is probably one of the most renowned and famous structural engineers in the world. Uh, and I started cross-examining him about what games he played when he was in engineering school and whether he played the game of Jenga. Now, the jury started to smile, uh, and anybody who's played Jenga where you have the wooden uh, wooden pieces and you pull them out, see if when it's going to collapse, uh, can understand that. It's a very common sense thing that if you take the pieces out of the bottom on a tall structure, it's going to fall over. Right. So um, we wanted to use and get away from really technical stuff and use things that people, um, you know, are familiar with and know in their everyday lives.
0: Yeah. Um, the So in going back to the reason why it did collapse, I mean, you talked about how they took away the, uh, the lateral stability, but it sounded like it was mainly they were basically taking out the low parts, taking out the joists, things like that, while leaving, you know, these walls standing, you know, four yeah. stories up. They
1: decided to uh, rip it down from front to back rather than from top to bottom. And they decided to bring in mechanical equipment to do it, which was uh, uh, unsafe, uh, outrageously unsafe, because all you could do is claw at the bottom part of the building and then hope that it fell in your direction, as opposed to spending the time and money to take it down by hand from the top. And, uh, you know, Griffin Campbell and Ben Shaw, by the way, uh, um, were exposed to the hazard the whole time. And my and and their argument was, well, if this was so dangerous, why would these guys do it? And my response was it was so dangerous. And this tells you how clueless and incompetent they were. They didn't even realize that their lives were in danger. Uh, and the lives of their coworkers were in danger and they continued to do it this way.
0: Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed.
2: Completely changed, a lot more pajamas involved for me.
0: Yes, yes, a lot more working from the computer, yes, and only getting <laughs> dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services.
2: That's right, I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference, online, it's more important now than ever.
0: I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them. They'll enlarge them. They'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think, my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services.
2: Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we're yes. on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them.
0: Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, Just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there. But they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives. And everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com, and I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide, and they—I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com.
2: I was curious, Bob. One of the things that um, in reading your um, pre-trial memo, which kind of helped me sort of um, figure out all the players and all the moving parts, there. There were certain things you had pictures of during phases of constructions. There were certain things you didn't have pictures of because the people who were doing the demolition weren't really documenting things the way they should. And it sounded like you got a lot of evidence or at least photos from um, fr- sometimes from bystanders or neighbors who took pictures, some some testimony from day laborers. I'm wondering just in general how hard some of that evidence was to track down and and how you sort of got your your arms around that.
1: Um, Well, one of the things we did, and, you know, this is a really difficult decision to make, but I had the accident occurred or the tragedy, I won't call it an accident, the tragedy Mm -hmm. occurred on a Wednesday. uh, And I, you know, and I, I've probably done more construction accidents maybe than any lawyer in in the country. Um, And I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them and and other famous uh, building collapses, including the collapse of the Tropicana Mm -hmm. casino garage that killed four and injured 40. That was the one that that resulted in a $101 million settlement. So I got a case literally the next day. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew that they were going to move the debris field uh, on Sunday through people that I knew. So I went into court and was difficult because there were people who hadn't been buried yet. Right. I had to file a lawsuit and, and file a temporary restraining order uh, to get this done. Um, but that lawsuit and the publicity from that uh, triggered uh, a number of people sending us photographs mm-hmm. uh, that we otherwise would not have gotten. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I have to tell you, one of the clients that I ultimately did represent said I was pretty upset when I saw you at a press conference talking about the case uh, and talking about the debris field, uh, you know, when my daughter had not been buried. And I understand that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I had an obligation to other clients. And I thought that was the best way to make sure that whatever evidence was out there wasn't destroyed that Sunday. And that we, you know, that the general public would know about it and get us evidence and it turns out that the photograph from may 15th was the single most important piece of evidence other than those emails in the entire trial so it was uh uh i think it was the right decision but Mm -hmm. one that i certainly thought about before i made it
2: yeah uh
0: and, and i'll just say as a sort of i guess practice pointer for our listeners i mean you know uh it, the more you can get the word out about, you know, tragedies like this, you do find pictures that people will just send you and and then one one thing we do is go on social media and scour social media because you'll you'll find people who've posted them on Facebook or you know, something what they've just seen and you can find all kinds of pictures. I've I've got a trucking case right now where an explo it exploded and a trucker who's going the opposite way caught the explosion on his dash cam and put it on Facebook.
1: Yeah. We we uh we actually have an explosion case involving a truck where one of the other trucks that was behind has the video of him smashing into a car and bursting into flames. So, yeah. um, so that can be, you know, that type of evidence uh, can be case determinative. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. But it is an interesting point to bring up. I think a lot of times there's things that we have to do as, as lawyers because of the best thing for the case that they can, that can be misunderstood by the public or, or seem like it's, something that's for press or for attention when there's really completely other motivations for doing it. Um, but it, it sounds like you were able to sort of, um, I mean, that person ended up being your client. So it sounds like they were able to understand why you did it.
0: But
1: yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, um, I, I want to talk uh, about your opening uh, because there's you know several points in there that I think just were really uh, good, and I want to give you a chance to talk about how you approach openings. But I, I'll just mention a couple of the sort of themes or or you know that you used in your opening. But one is w- w- what I mentioned right at the beginning of the show, which is that this was not an accident because an accident is something that's unexpected and unpredictable, and this was neither unexpected nor unpredictable. Therefore, it's not an accident. So I thought that was a great. Uh, way to start. But then I really liked your sort of four simple things uh, that your expert had laid out that you do, you know, when you're choosing who's going to do a project like this for you. And it was, you know, I mean, it's common sense type things, but it's, you know, does your does the person have a contractor's license? Do do they have experience? Um, You know, do they have the right tools and employees? And then do they know the safety rules? Safety rules.
1: Yeah, Uh, very, very common sense. And I think that most people who are working would have some experience. And it seems like those are questions that you should ask. And, you know, you look at Griffin Campbell. He was unlicensed. He was inexperienced. He didn't have uh, employees. He didn't have a truck. He didn't have a bank account. Um, So he he didn't have any demolition tools. He had none of the tools. And he didn't even know that there were safety rules. Now, we've used the, the acronyms OSHA. That stands for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. They have very detailed r- rules for the construction industry. And demolition is part of the construction industry. Uh, ANSI, the American National Standards Institute, has standards on demolition. Uh, uh, the International Building Code has certain standards regarding buildings and demolition. And uh, so does the city of Philadelphia. So, and they violated every code, as I mentioned in closing. I I mean, you know, unless there are codes in other galaxies, uh, they violated every code that actually exists. Right. right.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, Bob, you, um, the, you know, you mentioned all the, the different sort of, I mean, ignorance of the safety rules, which is even beyond Um, kind of what you would expect. Um, You know, there was some stuff in the record about people introducing themselves as engineers, but they weren't really engineers. I'm curious, just in general, with how many construction cases you've handled, how often is this kind of thing going on? It happens
1: a lot. I mean, you know, I've had so many people where I've got a project superintendent and uh, I'm like, uh, what are the OSHA fall protection regulations? Uh, I don't know. Well, the contract requires compliance with OSHA, right? Yes. Uh, and OSHA has full protection. Yes. Well, how would you comply with the contract if you don't know OSHA? And I had a guy once say, "That's a good question." I said, "Do you have a good answer?" <laughs> he looked at me and shook his head, and I said, "I, I most certainly do not." <laughs> uh, in another case, I had a guy I said, "You knew there was OSHA, yes?" Uh, and uh, did you did you know what the rules were? Now I said, "Oh." So you knew there was OSHA and you knew there were safety rules but you decided not to read OSHA and figure out what they were. Uh yes. So uh <laughs> it's getting better. Uh yeah. the the uh, death rate and injury rate in construction is is declining particularly regarding fall protection um and uh that's something that I have lectured about, and spoken to contractors about, and you know, have had uh, feedback that our cases, our lawsuits, our lectures have had a positive effect on reducing uh, work, workplace fatalities in the construction industry. And I've tell you, if we could eliminate all of them, and I never had to sit across the kitchen table from a widow. And kids knowing that there's gonna be an empty uh place at the dinner table for the rest of their lives, I'm sure I could do do just fine doing mm-hmm. other cases. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely, absolutely.
2: There's a um, I don't know if you spend any time on TikTok, Bob, but there's a there's a hashtag on on TikTok that is, is this okay, Osha? Is the hashtag. And it's people. Um, If you scroll through, it's videos of guys on construction sites doing the most insane insane stuff. And, you know, and they're posting it like it's funny and, you know, maybe in the situation it is. But you look at this stuff, especially as a lawyer and how first of all, how bad it would be if it ever came out in a case, but also just how dangerous it is in general. And it's crazy that it's just this thing posted on TikTok. But.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it can be an unsafe world out there, uh, particularly for construction workers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, here um, it was, the, it was the general public that, that, you know, were the ones who right. got injured and killed because of this. So, Right. Construction can affect not just the workers, but uh, anybody who's around it.
0: Yeah. Well, I I, I kind of was wondering. Uh, you know, we didn't uh, read the uh, the cross in uh, direct of Mr. Basciano, but you know, you had developed this theme that you know, every, basically every person at every level was inexperienced, didn't know what question to ask, didn't even didn't even ask any questions, didn't do any kind of vetting, and then. Um, but it seemed to me that that Mr. Basciano and his company had been involved in construction projects all his life and all up and down the East Coast. What was his explanation for not doing any vetting? He,
1: he, he basically said that was my right hand guy, Tom Simmons, but Simmons didn't have any experience and Plato Maranakis didn't have any experience and Griffin Campbell didn't have any experience and they didn't know the rules. Uh, And as I talked about in both opening and closing, it was the blind leading the blind, leading the blind. And uh, when, we talked about the collapse um and and the tragedy, and you know, my argument was the tragedy began. The collapse began the day Richard Bacciano picked Tom Simmons, who had no experience managing one of these projects, and it got worse when he picked Marinakis, and it got worse when he picked Griffin Campbell, and then it got worse every single day that the project continued,
0: yeah well and and it, you know, and that's what I at the beginning of you know on a project of this scale, I think you know most you know average people on the street would assume you know on this at least on this size, people are following all the rules and regulations and uh and that they they would have to, but it's just uh I mean, just shocking that uh, that there was literally nothing being done. um you know and and I, and I remember part of their defense was well we we knocked down four buildings fine. It was just that fifth one.
1: But yeah, and then we had photographs of some of that, and that was being done in violation of OSHA as well. And they started those buildings without a permit, and there were emails indicating that uh, they knew that was illegal, and they were hiding it from the city and hiding it from the Philadelphia Inquirer who was asking questions about it. So you now um was physically at the site, the collapse was. June 5th, he was there May 31st, he was there uh, June 2nd, and he was there again on the day of the collapse as the collapse was occurring. Though he claims he was in the bathroom, Griffin Campbell said he was, he was standing right there. At one point in my cross-examination of him, uh, he, uh, as I pressed him, uh, he, he stammered out, uh, I'm going through hell. And I looked at him and I said, don't you think that the people who survived this are going through hell? And don't you think that the people who died buried under rubble, getting slowly suffocated, died in hell? At which point he began sobbing, broke down, said, I can't take this anymore. And uh, we had to halt court proceedings for the day. I don't think that the jury bought those crocodile tears one bit. Um, and I think that uh, if they had any doubt about him, uh, they knew uh, who he really was with that in my view contrived outburst.
0: Um, well, let's uh, let's talk about the closing because I, I, I really like the way it was done. First question I had is: It in in Pennsylvania, the defendant normally goes first, and then and then yeah. basically you rebut. Yeah. Okay.
1: No. So let's, I, I want to go back to opening a little bit. So okay. I, I, you know, we set up the opening. So some other lawyers, other lawyers, great lawyers that were with us and and Steve Wigreiser, who's now one of my partners and, and Harry Roth and, and Jim Begley. And, and, uh, my, my partner, Jeff Goodman were, were just tremendous in this Jason Weiss, um, Harry Roth. Um, it was, uh, I, I just thought there. Uh, this was a combined team effort. Uh, so uh, other people did sort of the opening regarding STB and Bassiano and the Salvation Army. And then I did the construction part of it because of my background and experience. I thought it was the single most critical point to prove that it actually was dangerous on May 15th. That involved a lot of technical information that we had to make simple. And then uh, the plaintiffs go first in closing. And uh, those same lawyers handled the closing against the CB Salvation Army. Then each of the defendants closed. And then in Pennsylvania, plaintiffs give rebuttals. So my closing was really a rebuttal. But uh, Steve, as you mentioned, uh, the person who closed before me was Dick Sprague. This legendary lawyer and I thought long and hard, how am I going to do this? And what I decided to do was uh, I, I used this theme of when it was time. And uh, I started with when it was time uh, for Richard Basciano to protect the public by selecting an experienced, licensed and safe mm-hmm. demolition contractor, Petro's the unlicensed, inexperienced, unsafe Griffin Campbell. But when it was time for him to protect himself Mm. and his money, he chose, and I walked across the courtroom, the legendary Dick Sprague. So I decided to take Dick Sprague's notoriety uh, and his status as a legend and use it against him. And then I pivoted to the Salvation Army. They had uniformed officers in the courtroom every single day of this trial Mm -hmm. over that span of seven months. And then I pivoted to them and said, when it was time for the Salvation Army to protect the public by investigating this, sending people to investigate this project where they've been told there could be a collapse that could kill their employees, they sent no one and did nothing. But when it came time to protect themselves in this courtroom from a verdict, they decided to pander to you. By bringing in a uniformed officer to sit in this courtroom every day for seven months, where why are you here now, and why aren't you there then? Right. And I pointed out them. I walked to the back of the courtroom there in the front row, and they sort of recoiled as I pointed my finger at them. But I decided, and I went through this when it was time, and I went back and forth, you know, when it was time for them to ask questions, they asked nothing. But when it was time to come into this courtroom, they asked thousands, why are they when it was time to retain a world class structural engineer to protect the public? They didn't hire anybody. But when it came time to protect themselves, they got the best guy in the world. And so we we took that and used it against them. And I think it it turned out very effectively.
0: Yeah. No, it, it was, I mean, I I really liked it. And, it, you know, and the, I, I mean, all the points were great, but I really liked the one about the structural engineer because I think they had paid him like $290,000 uh, for trial. So it's like, you know, I mean, and it, and I don't remember exactly what the, the demolition contract was, but it was not a whole lot more. Yeah. Okay. So they spent more on the structural engineer trial than they did on this whole demolition project. And where,
1: that's something that we talked about, you know, we also had to handle, you know the Griffin Campbell being high thing, and uh, so what do you think is the uh, the most memorable line in uh, any trial in the last fifty years in America? I would say I admit, that it was Johnny Cochran.
0: did not fit, yeah. Yeah, if the like,
1: love does not fit, you must quit. So rhymes, I think rhymes matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so with grit, with uh, Sean Benshaw being high, uh, my. My argument was, it's not the man, it's the plan. And uh, that construction plan did not change just because he was high that day. He was doing what he had done in the weeks uh, and months leading up to this. Um, And, uh, you know, we'll get to the verdict, but, you know, we had a huge risk and, you know, you got criminals in prison and what percentage of responsibility are they going to put on them?
2: So, um,
1: and then... Uh, I I think probably the single most compelling moment of this trial and certainly the signature moment of my trial career was um, a moment during trial when I was cross-examining Major Dietrich. He was one of the Salvation Army uh, upper command, uh, a licensed minister. Uh, and I brought the jury back to that in closing because I thought it typified the entire case. And our argument had always been the Salvation Army pretends that they are something, uh, but they are really something else. And you're going to see it during this trial. By the way, our jury focused research showed us that the people who were most supportive of the Salvation Army and their mission going in before they heard any of the evidence would be if we proved that they did wrong and they knew about it they would be our strongest jurors going forward and most likely to find for us and most likely to give us big dollars so i went back to and i ended my my closing uh with you know we're all going to remember this trial for the rest of our lives um every one of us we've been here you know, we started in August, it was 98 degrees and it is 14 degrees outside and there's an ice skating rink outside. We're going to remember. It. Everybody may have a different memory, but we'll remember to the day we die. And I said, and what I will remember was when I was cross-examining Major Dietrich and pressing him hard. And he, you saw him. He looked at me from the witness stand, picked up his finger and pointed at me. And said, Mr. Mongolizzi, this was a terrible tragedy. And I pray for the victims every night. And I hesitated. And I walked up to the, the bar of the court. I looked at up looked up at him and, and softly asked him, What are their names? And for anybody who's a trial lawyer, mm-hmm. that 10 to 15 seconds of silence is like an eternity. Mm. And he finally stammered out, I, uh, 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 uh I, uh, I read their names when it happened. I must've forgotten them. I pray for them generally. And I looked back over my shoulder and said, I guess their names weren't important enough to remember and sat down. Mm. And, yeah. uh, that was the last question <laughs> that I asked him. And it, uh, in my view, that showed the Salvation Army and uh, what they were pretending that they were and, and, and how they had acted in this case. And I thought, in my view, that was the signature, signature moment of the case. Um, <clears throat> certainly no, no trial is ever won by any one lawyer when there's other lawyers who are so good. We made thousands of consequential decisions. But uh, that was for me a, a really memorable
0: moment. Yeah, that's powerful.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh my um, gosh, I would be, I would have been squirming in like. <laughs> but I mean, that's what you have to do. You have yeah. to bring yeah. out those difficult moments.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen. A lot of people have said, "Did you know what the answer to the question was?" There? And I didn't. First of all, if I had asked the question before in deposition, I sure as heck wouldn't answer it, ask it in in trial, because if I had asked in deposition, he didn't know it, he was sure as heck would know it at trial. Oh, yeah. yeah, So I had to, it was a judgment call. And the reason I asked it is about a year earlier, I'd done a seminar on how to handle pretrial publicity. And there was a PR person. There was someone who, who, who consults with corporations when they're having catastrophes and public relation crises. There was a defense attorney who talked about it from the defense perspective. I talked about it from the plaintiff's perspective. And that day, there was a shooting. And um, you know, right before I had come over to the seminar, you know, I was reading on the internet. And of course, there was the standard line, like the, you know, the victims were in our thoughts and prayers. And I remember telling the PR person who's a friend of mine <clears throat> when I spoke about it, talked to him that night. I said, I'd love to be one of those reporters and ask them, you the, the victims are in your thoughts and prayer. What are their names? Yeah. And he sort of chuckled about it. And I'm telling you, when he gave that answer, that's what my brain went back to. Mm-hmm. And it was just an instinctive go for it. Now I was also prepared to. If he got their names right, there was some other stuff where he had forgotten stuff that was on emails that was important. And I was gonna go back and forth. Oh, you remember the names of 19 random people, but you don't remember the own emails that you both send and receive. So I had a fallback on it, mm-hmm. but um, it was an important moment for me. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, that's a huge moment. I I also want to, I want you to talk a little bit about the way you handled um, is Dick Sprague had, had made a pretty impassioned argument in his close and, and you handled it, I thought really well, um, you know, and, and brought up some of the points that he brought up and but, you know, also, you know, showed him, you know, the respect that you obviously had for him at the same time. You know, kind of went through and took his arguments apart. Now, I just want to talk, why don't you talk about how you approach that?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, the other thing I want to tell you is this trial was done totally electronically. There was not a single piece of paper during a trial that spanned seven months. Uh, we, so my directs, my crosses were all electronic. Uh, I almost always do it that way. It's like, for me, it's like having a, um, a teleprompter because I go through the slides in my head and I know what I'm going to say. But if you're preparing a close in that way, then, and you're also given a rebuttal where you need to talk about what the uh, other opposing attorney is doing becomes more complex Mm -hmm. to be able to figure it out in your own mind. So, um, but there are a couple of things he said. I mean, he had argued that the plaintiffs had filed this for revenge and And uh, I went after that strongly and I looked him straight in the eye and said, You're dead wrong. They didn't come here for revenge. They didn't come here for sympathy. They've had plenty of it. They came here for justice. And that's what I turned around the jury and said, That's what it's about. Uh, He talked about how Griffin Campbell was a bull in a china shop. And and, uh, I came back and said, Well, you know, if Griffin Campbell was the bull in the china shop, shouldn't we hold the person responsible who put the ball in the china shop mm-hmm, which is right. probably a really unwise thing to do mm-hmm. um and then you know there was the argument that uh we're all actors and i think you know i have a, um, I, I have an emotional uh style in the courtroom i think people would say i've got an aggressive style in the courtroom i think i've and I can't stand too close to the jury. I think they're like, you know, <laughs> right. go back. Um, but I, I, listen, I think that they they uh, they respect it, and I think that they they. Uh, I think one of the things, that one of the strengths that I have as a trial lawyer, is that um, my mom died when I was fifteen, and so I have uh, I've felt the loss. I know what it's like to have an empty chair at the kitchen table. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know what that, uh, and I know, you know, after the funeral, when everybody goes back to their life, what that emptiness feels like. And um, and I think juries know that I really feel it because I I have felt it. Um, So when we were said to be actors, you know, my pitch was that, you know, this isn't an act and it's not a play. Uh, this is real life heart and uh, they feel it every day. So, and I spent a lot of time in my closing on the verdict sheet. It was a very complex 37 question verdict sheet. Uh, I went through, it was up on the screen. I went through it in exacting detail because ultimately that's what they need to fill out for mm-hmm. you to win. Right. Right. So I've seen um, I've seen other lawyers not spend a lot of time on it. I I, I spend as much time as I can. I argue uh, to every judge. I've only had a few who have accepted this, that. Um, we should do the jury charge before closings. Yeah, I agree. So that they know what the law is and what they're going to be charged. And then we could argue it. I think it is illogical to give closings and then tell them what the ground rules are. They mm-hmm. should give them the ground rules. And I feel very strongly about that. hmm.
0: Yeah. No, I, 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 agree. I mean, you know, and I, you know, arguing the charges uh, to the jury is just such an important part and going through the verdict farm. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about this? Um, you know, how you were able to get them to apportion the way they did. And I guess, you know, specifically, you know, at the end of the day, Griffin Campbell and Sean Binshop, who the two guys who actually went to prison for this only got 1% of yeah, the response.
1: Uh, that's a good story. First of all, yeah jury you know came back in at lightning speed uh considering um you know i mean we we finished it like four o'clock in the afternoon and then the jury comes back the next day, and the court gives them the charge, and we think we go out at like eleven and then like at two thirty we have a question which is um we, and by the way, the, the verdict form was pre-checked for Campbell and Ben Shop's mm-hmm. negligence because of their uh, criminal convictions. So uh, that wasn't even a jury question. So the jury comes back and says, these have been pre-checked. Uh, does that mean we have to give them any percentage of responsibility? So they wanted to zero out Ben Shop and Campbell. They were going to give them nothing. Zero. And the court said, no, you have to give them some measure of responsibility. And they came back at 1% each. I, I argued, I, I went after, uh, Marinakis, uh, uh you know, I don't want to say viciously because I wouldn't be that way, but I was, I, I was very, uh, aggressive in my questioning of him, um, in my view, deservedly, um. But when it came to uh, apportionment, I told the jury that you know he was put there by STB and 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 Bassiano. Um, But this case was really about the Salvation Army. That's why all these people were there. My clients didn't know anything about STB. They didn't know anything about Richard Basciano. They were there because of the Salvation Army, and the Salvation Army is the one who owed the duty to them. And I argued that the, uh, the responsibility was overwhelmingly uh, for the Salvation Army. And I think that considering I had gone after Bassiano and STB and Maranottis, um, there were some who thought that, uh, you know, I shouldn't have gone after them that aggressively, but I think it gave me a lot more credibility with mm-hmm. the jury to say, and I said it to them, I went after him. I'm the first guy who would tell you Who is the overwhelming responsibility here? And let me tell you why it's the Salvation Army. And so we needed 60% on them. The jury found them 75% responsible. But they also found them responsible under intentional tort. So they found that they intentionally uh, failed to disclose a material fact. That is that they were warned that the building was going to collapse and people could be killed something that every customer who walked into that store should have known about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to tell you that if I was walking in and they said, hey, there's demolition next door, we've been warned there's going to be a collapse that could kill people. I would turn around and I wouldn't walk in the store. They took right. that choice away mm-hmm. uh, from these victims. Uh, and so the jury came back and, and found the Salvation Army 75% responsible and found them responsible for intentional torts. And they found reckless and outrageous conduct, which they found for every one of the other defendants. So with the exception of Campbell and Benshop, who we did not sue on a reckless uh, theory. And then, uh, you know, and then we went into damages for, I'm going to say, three days. And then the case, the case resolved.
0: Yeah. And I, I you know, I, I didn't get to see a lot about the damages. I saw that your um, client Juanita Harmon, uh, she had been a, a secretary at uh, Wharton uh, mm-hmm. School of Business. And um, and then, you know, what it was, I think you had her son on the stand who sort of just walked through her life and, you know, what she was like. And and but one thing I thought, uh, you know, was just really um you're troubling for me, I mean, you know, was that she, you know, uh, was caught under this rubble pile for like eight hours with her neck broken before she passed away.
1: Yeah, uh, all all of them that were buried uh, did not die immediately. None of them had head injuries or brain injuries. They were asphyxiated and they were crushed to death. Um, and Bryan, whose, whose mother, uh, Nancy Winkler, was treasurer of the city of Philadelphia, husband, Jay, Brian, I mean, Nancy had just flown in on a red eye that morning after being in LA on business. And she and Anne took a bike ride, um, uh, you know, and came back and then Ann went over to the Salvation Army uh, with her good friend. Um, and so um, it was really a tragedy, uh, just a, a, a tragedy of tragic proportions and, and, you know, that you could just go shopping or go to try to donate some clothes and and be killed like that is just terrible. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and then ap- so three days in, you were able to work out a resolution for the, the case and, and get the uh, case completely resolved, which is great for the clients.
1: It, it is. I mean, this would have been on appeal for years Um, You never know how the verdict would have turned out. Listen, maybe it would have been more, maybe it would have been less, but um, it brought, I don't want to say closure uh, because I think anybody who suffered that loss, particularly when it's tragic, you know, and someone dies suddenly, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, it's just a terrible, terrible thing. I mean, you know, uh, one of the women that were the, that was there was it was her first day on the job she was killed mm-hmm. um so which was just a kimberly finnegan just a terrible terrible thing i mean it just gotten engaged um uh, you know just so much tragedy and loss
0: after you got the case resolved, did you have a chance to talk to the jurors? Do they? I did. I did talk to a couple
1: of the jurors um, and um, they they certainly were not buying the Salvation Army's uh, defenses at all. Um, they were uh, outraged at their conduct. Um, you know, there was there was how do I put this. So you have these. Salvation Army officers, you know, so much is about what we not only hear, but what we see. And when and they all came into their depositions in their Salvation Army uniforms, which, you know, they're military. Um, uh, they have lapel patches that say S.S. Not hmm. S.A. S.S. Hmm. And they're wearing these military uh, Uh, outfits. Um, I don't think that the upper management came across as compassionate and endearing. Right. Uh, They exposed, in my view, they exposed their own employees. There was a moment where, and man, they howled at this, where I had this organizational chart, which had the pictures of all the guys in upper management or in upstate New York. And then down at the bottom, all of the workers there, and um, you know there were stark differences in you know gender, in uh, race, in age, in economics between them. And uh, I was cross-examining one of their experts, and I was like, these these guys up here in the uniforms, they have the emails, they have the warnings, they have the information. True. This was their last expert. He said yes, and I said these people down here they have not received the emails. They have not received the warnings, correct? He's like, that's correct. I said, so by your own testimony, we have the haves and the have-nots. And then the the organizational slide, I had a second one, which had the haves at the top and the have-nots down at the bottom. But I think that the jury got the sense that the upper management at Salvation Army didn't care about their employees, the working conditions there were deplorable. And, you know, I felt that they felt, the jury felt that they didn't care about people and they had lost their way with their mission. And listen, the Salvation Army, uh, you know, this is about this case. There are many great people and they do many great things, but not in not in this
0: instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, well, Bob, this has been just a great uh, conversation. Uh, I want to make sure. Is there anything that we haven't talked about about the uh, Harmon versus Salvation Army uh, at all um, case that um, you want to make sure our listeners have heard that uh, we haven't had a chance to talk about?
1: Uh, No, I think we've really covered it. Um, I want to, Steve and, and Yvonne, I just really want to thank, uh, both of you, uh, for this opportunity. I'm really passionate. I, um, uh, about this, uh, in 1994, I went back to law school to, at Temple to take the first ever master's in trial advocacy. Oh, awesome. I, I have, uh, and so I'm in the first class ever to get that degree, as my professors would say, a degree they didn't even have.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, and uh, teaching and talking about trial strategy particularly uh, is something that um, I think is really important. Uh, I'm passionate about it. I, I teach as well, um, do a lot of seminars, and to have the opportunity to talk about this, which has really been the signature case of my career, has been quite an opportunity. So, I want to thank both of you. Uh, I'm here with Aiden, who works for us, who has listened to every single one
0: oh, awesome. of your podcasts because
1: he's got a community takes, which is uh, about an hour. Uh, and I am starting to work my way through it. Uh, I, nice. just to, I just listened to my good friend, Shane Inspectors, the other day yep, uh, yep. Uh, to see how this went. Uh, and so, I can't tell you how thrilled i am to have had this opportunity
0: yeah thank oh one thing i did want to ask you and i totally just saw the note on it so i'm sorry but at some point during the trial did you spill a soda in the <laughs> judge notice and the jury did because i saw yeah. you mention that in closing and i thought it was great but I uh did. i yeah. did
1: it was really funny we were told not to have sodas on it and she was looking in the back and i turned to my partner jeff and I accidentally knocked over the soda, and now I'm trying to- <laughs> Dab it off the side, and in closing, I talked to the jury and thanked them. I think most of the time, lawyers pander to the jury by thanking them. It can be a two-day trial; they thank the jury. And I'm like, give me a break. <laughs> um, you know, listen. I think yeah. that everybody should do their service. I thanked them because this was extraordinary. I mean, they they were there for over a span of seven months. Um, but I said, you know, and you you notice everything like a lawyer who may have knocked yeah. over there at <laughs> soda and they laughed. Yeah. I mean yeah. they they got it. Every single one of them had seen it, but it was a way to make a connection with them to make fun of myself. Yeah. And and the reaction that I got uh when that jury went out, I was dead certain that we were winning that case. I mm-hmm. had no, I just didn't I didn't have any anxiety. I I I, I just felt it. So,
2: well, Bob, we really, we really thank you for, um I mean, you thanked us for having you on, but we really thank you for being willing to share your knowledge um, that you've gained through all of your amazing accomplishments, including this case with us and with our listeners, because we really do have um, a wide spectrum of listeners. We have a lot of people who are just starting out and have a lot they want to learn. We've got We've got law students and even before law students are figuring out if this is what they want to do. And so we appreciate you taking your time to to talk to us.
1: And anybody, if you get on our website, my emails there are mongolizzi at smbb.com. And I'd be happy to answer anybody's questions. Uh, I really enjoy communicating with people, particularly on questions of trial strategy, because uh, to me, uh, I, I am so involved in that is So interesting uh, to me, and I don't think there's as much out there on strategic decision making and trials. Right. So this was a great uh, a great opportunity for me. So all I can say is. I hope I have another case that will bring me back someday.
0: In the nah, you, <laughs> yeah. I think you've got a list of them. But uh, yeah. but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, let me th- let me uh, uh, remind everybody we've been talking to Bob Mang- Mangaluzzi, uh, also known affectionately as Mongo, and uh, we really appreciate him coming on the show. He is uh, at uh, Salts Mangaluzzi and Bendeski in um, Philadelphia, and you can look him up at smbb.com. Bob, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. I'll see you again. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast. Podcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website.
2: Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note: If you have something mean to say, we don't have email. (laughs) Right, exactly.
0: (laughs) We only need uh, positive commentary. Yeah,
2: we're fragile. Um, You can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts: Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say.